Chapter Eight of the Pioneers, or the Sources of the Susquehanna, a descriptive tale, by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Eight. Quote, for here the exile met from every clime, and spoke in friendship every distant tongue. Unquote. Campbell. We have made our readers acquainted with some variety in character and nations in introducing the most important personages of this legend to their notice. But, in order to establish the fidelity of our narrative, we shall briefly attempt to explain the reason why we have been obliged to present so motley a dramatis personae. Europe, at the period of our tale, was in the commencement of that commotion which afterward shook her political institutions to the center. Louis the Sixteenth had been beheaded, and a nation once esteemed the most refined among the civilized people of the world was changing its character, and substituting cruelty for mercy, and subtlety and ferocity for magnanimity and courage. Thousands of Frenchmen were compelled to seek protection in distant lands, among the crowds who fled from France and her islands to the United States of America was the gentleman whom we have already mentioned as Monsieur Lecoy. He had been recommended to the favor of Judge Temple by the head of an eminent mercantile house in New York, with whom Marmaduke was in habits of intimacy, and accustomed to exchange good offices. At his first interview with the Frenchman, our judge had discovered him to be a man of breeding, and one who had seen much more prosperous days in his own country. From certain hints that had escaped him, Monsieur Lecoy was suspected of having been a West India planter, great numbers of whom had fled from St. Domingo and the other islands, and were now living in the Union, in a state of comparative poverty, and some in absolute want. The latter was not, however, the lot of Monsieur Lecoy. He had but little, he acknowledged, that little was enough to furnish, in the language of the country, an assortment for a store. The knowledge of Marmaduke was eminently practical, and there was no part of a settler's life with which he was not familiar. Under his direction, Monsieur Lecoy made some purchases, consisting of a few cloths, some groceries, with a good deal of gunpowder and tobacco, a quantity of ironware, among which was a large portion of Barlow's jack-knives, potash kettles, and spiders, a very formidable collection of crockery of the coarsest quality and most uncouth forms, together with every other common article that the art of man has devised for his wants, not forgetting the luxuries of looking-glasses and jews-harps. With this collection of valuables, Monsieur Lecoy had stepped behind a counter, with a wonderful pliability of temperament, and dropped into his assumed character as gracefully as he had ever moved in any other. The gentleness and suavity of his manners rendered him extremely popular. Besides this, women soon discover that he had taste. His calicoes were the finest, 
or in other words, the most showy, of any that were brought into the country, and it was impossible to look at the prices asked for his goods by so pretty a spoken man. Through these conjoint means, the affairs of Monsieur Lacoy were again in a prosperous condition, and he was looked up to by the settlers as the second best man on the patent. Footnote. The term patent, which we have already used, and for which we may have further occasion, meant the district of country that had been originally granted to old Major Effingham by the King's Letters Patent, and which had now become, by purchase under the Act of Confiscation, the property of Marmaduke Temple. It was a term in common use throughout the new parts of the state, and was usually annexed to the landlord's name as, quote, Temple's or Effingham's patent, unquote. End footnote. Major Hartman was a descendant of a man who, in company with a number of his countrymen, had immigrated with their families from the banks of the Rhine to those of the Mohawk. This migration had occurred as far back as the reign of Queen Anne, and their descendants were now living in great peace and plenty on the fertile borders of that beautiful stream. The Germans, or High Dutchers as they were called, to distinguish them from the original or Low Dutch colonists, were a very peculiar people. They possessed all the gravity of the latter, without any of their phlegm, and like them, the High Dutchers, were industrious, honest, and economical. Fritz, or Frederick Hartmann, was an epitome of all the vices and virtues, foibles and excellences of his race. He was passionate, though silent, obstinate, and a good deal suspicious of strangers, of immovable courage, inflexible honesty, and undeviating in his friendships. Indeed, there was no change about him unless it were from grave to gay. He was serious by months and jolly by weeks. He had, early in their acquaintance, formed an attachment for Marmaduke Temple, who was the only man that could not speak High Dutch that ever gained his entire confidence. Four times in each year, at periods equidistant, he left his low stone dwelling on the banks of the Mohawk and traveled thirty miles through the hills to the door of the mansion-house in Templeton. Here he generally stayed a week, and was reputed to spend much of that time in riotous living, greatly countenanced by Mr. Richard Jones. But everyone loved him, even to remarkable Pettibone, to whom he occasioned some additional trouble. He was so frank, so sincere, and at times so mirthful. He was now on his regular Christmas visit, and had not been in the village an hour when Richard summoned him to fill a seat in the sleigh to meet the landlord and his daughter. Before explaining the character and situation of Mr. Grant, it will be necessary to recur to times far back in the brief history of the settlement. There seems to be a tendency in human nature to endeavor to provide for the wants of this world before our attention is turned to the business of the other. Religion has a quality but little cultivated amid the stumps of Temple's patent for the first few years of its settlement, but 
as most of its inhabitants were from the moral states of Connecticut and Massachusetts, when the wants of nature were satisfied, they began seriously to turn their attention to the introduction of those customs and observances which had been the principal care of their forefathers. There was certainly a great variety of opinions on the subject of grace and free will among the tenantry of Marmaduke, and, when we take into consideration the variety of the religious instruction which they received, it can easily be seen that it could not well be otherwise. Soon after the village had been formally laid out into the streets and blocks that resembled a city, a meeting of its inhabitants had been convened, to take into consideration the propriety of establishing an academy. The measure originated with Richard, who in truth was much disposed to have the institution designated a university or at least a college. Meeting after meeting was held for this purpose, year after year. The resolutions of these symbiages appeared in the most conspicuous columns of a little blue-looking newspaper that was already issued weekly from the garret of a dwelling-house in the village, and which the traveller might as often see stuck into the fissure of a stake, erected at the point where the footpath from a log-cabin of some settler entered the highway, as a post-office for an individual. Sometimes the stake supported a small box, and a whole neighborhood received a weekly supply of their literary wants at this point, where the man who rides post regularly deposited a bundle of the precious commodity. To these flourishing resolutions, which briefly recounted the general utility of education, the political and geographical rights of the village of Templeton to a participation in the favors of the regents of the university, the salubrity of the air, and the wholesomeness of the water, together with the cheapness of food and the superior state of morals in the neighborhood, were uniformly annexed in large Roman capitals. The names of Marmaduke Temple as chairman, and Richard Jones as secretary. Happily, for the success of this undertaking, the regents were not accustomed to resist these appeals to their generosity, whenever there was the smallest prospect of a donation to second the request. Eventually, Judge Temple concluded to bestow the necessary land, and to erect the required edifice at his own expense. The skill of Mr., or as he was now called, from the circumstance of having received the commission of a justice of the peace, Squire Doolittle, was again put in requisition, and the science of Mr. Jones was once more resorted to. We shall not recount the different devices of the architects on the occasion, nor would it be decorous to do so, seeing that there was a convocation of the society of the ancient and honorable fraternity of the free and accepted Masons, at the head of whom was Richard, in the capacity of master, doubtless to approve or reject such of the plans as, in their wisdom, they deemed to he for the best. The naughty point was, however, soon decided, and on the appointed day the Brotherhood marched in great state, displaying sundry banners and mysterious symbols, each man with a little mimic apron before him, from a most cunningly contrived apartment in the garret of the bold dragoon, an inn kept by one Captain Hollister, 
to the site of the intended edifice. Here Richard laid the cornerstone with suitable gravity amidst an assemblage of more than half of the men and all the women within ten miles of Templeton. In the course of the succeeding week there was another meeting of the people, not omitting swarms of the gentler sex, when the abilities of Hiram at the square rule were put to the test of experiment. The frame fitted well, and the skeleton of the fabric was reared without a single accident, if we accept a few falls from horses while the laborers were returning home in the evening. From this time the work advanced with great rapidity, and in the course of the season the labor was completed. The edifice, manding in its heatity and proportions, the boast of the village, the study of young aspirants of for architectural fame, and the admiration of every settler on the patent. It was a long, narrow house of wood, painted white, and more than half windows, and when the observer stood at the western side of the building, the edifice offered but a small obstacle to a full view of the rising sun. It was, in truth, a very comfortless, open place, through which the daylight shone with natural facility. On its front were diverse ornaments in wood designed by Richard and executed by Hiram, but a window in the center of the second story immediately over the door, or grand entrance, and the steeple were the pride of the building. The former was, we believe, of the composite order, for it included in its composition a multitude of ornaments and a great variety of proportions. It consisted of an arched compartment in the centers with a square and small division on either side, the whole encased in heavy frames, deeply and laboriously molded in pine wood, and lighted with a vast number of blurred and green-looking glass of those dimensions which are commonly called eight by ten. Blinds that were intended to be painted green kept the window in a state of preservation, and probably might have contributed to the effect of the whole had not the failure in the public funds, which seems always to be incidental to any undertaking of this kind, left them in the somber coat of lead color with which they had been originally clothed. The steeple was a little copula, reared on the very center of the roof, on four tall pillars of pine that were fluted with a gouge and loaded with moldings. On the tops of the columns was reared a dome, or copula, resembling in shape an inverted teacup without its bottom, from the center of which projected a spire or shaft of wood, transfixed with two iron rods that bore on their ends the letters N, S, E, and W, in the same metal. The whole was surmounted by an imitation of one of the finny tribe, carved in wood by the hands of Richard, and painted what he called a scale color. This animal, Mr. Jones affirmed to be an admirable resemblance of a great favorite of the epicures of that country, which bore the title of Lakefish. And doubtless the assertion was true, for, although intended to answer the purposes of a weathercock, the fish was observed invariably to look with a longing eye in the direction of the beautiful sheet of water that lay embedded in the mountains of Templeton.
For a short time after the charter of the regents was received, the trustees of this institution employed a graduate of one of the eastern colleges to instruct such youth as aspired to knowledge within the walls of the edifice which we have described. The upper part of the building was in one apartment, and was intended for gala days and exhibitions, and the lower contained two rooms that were intended for the great divisions of education, visa, the Latin, and the English scholars. The former were never very numerous, though the sounds of nominative, penia, genitive, penny, were soon heard to issue from the windows of the room, to the great delight and manifest edification of the passenger. Only one laborer in this temple of Minerva, however, was known to get so far as to attempt the translation of Virgil. He indeed appeared at the annual exhibition to the prodigious exultation of all his relatives, a farmer's family in the vicinity, and repeated the whole of the first eclogue from memory, observing the intonations of the dialogue with much judgment and effect. The sounds as they proceeded from his mouth of Tidiri to Patili re cubans subjitimifi fegi, Silvestrim tinunumasram meditaris avene, were the last that had been heard in that building, as probably they were the first that had ever been heard in the same language, there or anywhere else. By this time the trustees discovered that they had anticipated the age, and the instructor or principal was superseded by a master, who went on to teach the more humble lesson of the more haste, the worse speed, in good, plain English. From this time until the date of our incidents, the academy was a common country school, and the great room of the building was sometimes used as a courtroom at extraordinary trials, sometimes for conferences of the religious and morally disposed in the evening, at others for a ball in the afternoon, given under the auspices of Richard, and on Sundays, invariably, as a place of public worship. When an itinerant priest of the persuasion of the Methodist, Baptist, Universalist, or of the more numerous sect of the Presbyterians, was accidentally in the neighborhood, he was ordinarily invicted to officiate, and was commonly rewarded for his services by a collection in a hat, before the congregation separated. When no such regular minister offered, a kind of colloquial prayer or two was made by some of the more gifted members, and a sermon was usually read from Stern by Mr. Richard Jones. The consequence of this desultory kind of priesthood was, as we have already intimated, a great diversity of opinion on the more abstruse points of faith. Each sect had its adherents, though neither was regularly organized and disciplined. Of the religious education of Marmaduke we have already written, nor was the doubtful character of his faith completely removed by his marriage. The mother of Elizabeth was an Episcopalian, as indeed was the mother of the judge himself, and the good taste of Marmaduke revolted at the familiar colloquies which the leaders of the conferences held with the deity in their nightly meetings. In form he was certainly an Episcopalian, though not a sectary of that denomination. On the other hand, Richard was as rigid in the observance of the canons of his church 
as he was inflexible in his opinions. Indeed, he had once or twice essayed to introduce the Episcopal form of service on the Sundays that the pupil was vacant, but Richard was a good deal addicted to carrying things to an excess, and then there was something so papal in his air that the greater part of his hearers deserted him on the second Sabbath. On the third, his only auditor was Ben Pump, who had all the obstinate, enlightened orthodoxy of a high churchman. Before the War of the Revolution, the English church was supported in the colonies by much interest by some of its inheritance in the mother country, and a few of the congregations were very amply endowed. But for the season after the independence of the states was established, this sect of Christians languished for the want of the highest order of its priesthood. Pious and suitable divines were at length selected and sent to the mother country to receive that authority, which, it is understood, can only be transmitted directly from one to the other, and thus obtain in order to reserve that unity in their churches, which properly belong to a people of the same nation. But unexpected difficulties presented themselves in the oaths with which the policy of England had fettered their establishment, and much time was spent before a conscientious sense of duty would permit the prelates of Britain to delegate the authority so earnestly sought. Time, patience, and zeal, however, removed every impediment, and the venerable man who had been set apart by the American churches, at length, returned to their expecting diocese, endowed with the most elevated functions of their earthly church. Priests and deacons were ordained, and missionaries provided, to keep alive the expiring flame of devotion in such members as were deprived of the ordinary administrations by dwelling in new and unorganized districts. Of this number was Mr. Grant. He had been sent into the county of which Templeton was the capital, and had been kindly invited by Marmaduke, and officiously pressed by Richard, to take up his abode in the village. A small and humble dwelling was prepared for his family, and the divine had made his appearance in the place but a few days previously to the time of his introduction to the reader. As his forms were entirely new to most of the inhabitants, and a clergyman of another denomination had previously occupied the field by engaging the academy, the first Sunday after his arrival was allowed to pass in silence. But now that his rival had passed on, like a meteor filling the air with the light of his wisdom, Richard was empowered to give notice that public worship, after the forms of the Protestant Episcopal Church, would be held on the night before Christmas in the long room of the Academy in Templeton by the Reverend Mr. Grant. This annunciation excited great commotion among the different sectaries. Some wondered as to the nature of the exhibition, Others sneered, but a far greater part, recollecting the essays of Richard in that way, and mindful of the liberality or rather laxity of Marmaduke's notions on the subject of sectarianism, thought it most prudent to be silent. The expected evening was, however, the wonder of the hour, nor was the curiosity at all diminished when Richard and Benjamin, on the morning of the eventful day, were seen to issue from the woods in the neighborhood of the village, 
each bearing on his shoulders a large bunch of evergreens. This worthy pair was observed to enter the academy, and carefully to fasten the door after which their proceedings remained a profound secret to the rest of the village. Mr. Jones, before he commenced his mysterious business, having informed the schoolmaster, to the great delight of the white-headed flock he governed, that there would be no school that day. Marmaduke apprised of all these preparations by letter, and it was especially arranged that he and Elizabeth would should arrive in season to participate in the solemnities of the evening. After this digression, we shall return to our narrative. End of chapter 8 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in January of 2009.